So we're preaching a sermon series called Indomitable Faith. And how relevant is that? We don't want our faith to be pushed over. We don't want to be spiritual weaklings. We want to have true indomitable faith that lasts and perseveres. And the, the letter of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament serves this purpose well. It strengthens us in our faith. And the passage we're going to study today, sort of the last part of chapter 5, first part of chapter 6, will, will assist. Well, I would say that one of the most interesting jobs that a person could probably ever have would be to become an ambassador. I mean, how cool would that be to be called upon by your, your king, your queen, your president, your prime minister, and to be told, we've, we've chosen you to go to a faraway land and to represent the purposes of our country, uh, to make sure that we have good trade relationships, to, to, to speak to issues of justice, to speak to economic issues, military issues, social issues. I mean, that would be quite an honor for you to be selected to be an amba a Canadian ambassador, perhaps, to another country. Canada has over 100 ambassadors and diplomats serving the purposes of our country in, in other places around the world. And in today's passage, we want to discuss the idea of spiritual ambassadorship. We are ambassadors for Christ. This is part of our identity and our calling. And we're supposed to represent his purposes. That is the purposes of our king. You know who that is, right? King Jesus. No matter the obstacles, we represent him. We stay the course, no matter the cost. Join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start off with verse 16. And we're going to discuss a little bit about the, the benefits and the privileges of being an ambassador for Christ, representing his redemptive purposes in a broken world. One of the major benefits of being Christ's ambassador and understanding that you are is that you get a whole new outlook on life. By nature, we are incredibly self-centered, self-interested. I mean, just look around you. What do people live for in our culture by and large? Fame, fortune, power, money, the same stuff they were living for 50 years ago and 100 years ago and 200 years ago. We are very selfish and we tend to direct most of our decisions towards our own well-being, even by the way when we are benevolent or supposedly benevolent and charitable. We're often looking for attention and admiration and the adoration of the masses. But ambassadorship, biblical ambassadorship, helps us to have a new outlook on life. So I'm going to start with reading verses 16 through 19, which come to us as follows. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. The flesh refers to this, our just our physicality, and it also refers to our sin nature in scriptures. Just the, the, the temporal, the, the broken the tangible aspects of humanity. We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, in other words, people didn't fully understand his divinity, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anybody here in Christ? A few, looks like. Well, here's good news for you. He is a new creation. You're a new creation. The old has passed away, the old way of thinking, the old idols, the old foolishness, the old ignorance. That's passed away, the old condemnation. The new has come. 
All this is from God, so we don't take credit for it, who through Christ, that's his vehicle of redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Ambassadorship comes with a new outlook on life. No longer are we bound to the flesh. No longer are we just living the old horizontal life. No longer is our identity what we make of it, but our lives have been made new in Christ. His identity is our identity. His life is our life. His victory over the death uh, death in the grave is our victory over the death in the grave. We have become new creations in Christ. Prior to all of this, we were recipients of God's divine displeasure. Aliens, strangers cut off, outside of the covenants of grace, with no hope, destined to a Christless eternity. But through Christ, we've become recipients of God's divine pleasure. God loves his people. The church of Jesus Christ is precious to our king. He loves you. You are his son. You are his daughter. You're a new creation in Christ. And we can praise the Lord for that. God's condemnation has been put aside and we have now been adopted as the king's children. The agent of this is not self and it's not religion. What's the agent? Well, the text says in verse 18, it's Christ. It's through Christ that we have been redeemed. And what's interesting, if you look at this word reconciliation in the text, it's kind of used in two different forms. We've been reconciled, which is super awesome. And get this, we've now been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. So what we've received as a gift has now become part of our mission and our calling. So we now go into the world and we proclaim the message that has affected us, we now proclaim to others in the hopes that it might affect them and change them. We are God's redemptive, reconciling agents in a broken world. That's a pretty cool job description, I'd say. Imagine someone asks you on the street, hey, what do you do for a living? Well, among other things, I'm a reconciling agent of Christ the King. It's part of my identity. Might be kind of cheesy to say that, but you could get to that point in conversation so that you help them to understand that not only are you a plumber, a nurse, a factory worker, whatever you might be, but your heartbeat is to be an agent of reconciliation on behalf of the king. And this Christ, through Christ, who has come to us to make us agents of reconciliation, the text says, has also wiped our trespasses clean. What are trespasses? Your sins. The things you do you shouldn't do. The things you say you shouldn't have said. The things you don't do that you should have done. All your trespasses against God have been wiped clean. Now, I wonder 
if, if we've allowed this truth to affect us enough. You see, one of the things about God's word that Christians, I think, make the mistake um, of is in lack of application. So we're truth people, right? We believe in the truth of the Bible. This is true. Trinitarian theology is true. Justification by grace through faith is true. The second coming is true. The virgin birth is true. Holy living is true. All this stuff is true, true, true. But have we allowed it to transform us? Because truth is meant to transform us. It's meant to change the way we think and our attitudes and our priorities and how we conduct ourselves in relationships and how we respond to persecution or afflictions or death or sorrow. Truth is not just abstract propositions floating around out in there that we grab hold of and throw into doctrinal statements. They're meant to transform us. So we've received some truth today. How might we apply that? Well, let me throw out a few suggestions to you and I'm sure you can add to this list as well as you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. But one truth flowing out of this is that if you're a new creation and I'm a new creation, that should affect my relationship with you. Should affect my outlook on you. It should affect what I value about you. It should affect our ministry together. So if you, if you just kind of look around the room for a moment, feel free to do that, do a little swivel necking. There's a lot of people here that don't look like you. And if you talk to them afterwards, you'd find out they don't, they don't work in similar occupations that you do. And they, and they don't necessarily think like you. And maybe they come from different countries and there are different places in the, you know, the economic strata of society and so forth and so on. We're, we're very, this is a ragtag group, if you think about it. If you go to the hockey arena and you get all your gear on and you go out on the, on the ice... Yeah, you're going to have different names, but more or less you're a bunch of guys or a bunch of girls and you're probably kind of the same age and you have similar interests and you're all athletes. If you're a nurse in a hospital, you went through similar training, you have similar skill sets, certain knowledge, and there's some similarities there. Well, look at this ragtag group. What is it that binds us together? We're so different. What binds us together is that we've all, those of us that know the Lord, have mutually encountered a God who has radically transformed us. And there is intimacy and fellowship there that's unlike anything else. And you know it when you've experienced that. So it should affect the way we interact with one another. It should affect our calling, I would think. So what was my old calling? Living for self, self-advancement, accumulating money for myself, accumulating relationships for my benefit. But if you understand you're a Christ ambassador and you're an agent of reconciliation, it starts to change. Your marriage becomes a reflection of the gospel, not just a mutual meeting of needs. The way you raise your children becomes a discipleship process, not just getting them up and you know, out into life. It, you, you start to see it as discipleship. The way you handle your money, you, you become a steward. You're no longer an owner. You're no longer holding it like this. You hold it like this. And you, you look for opportunities to spend it on behalf of your king. You're an ambassador. It affects the way you forgive. I mean, all of us that have been around for any time at all have been offended and hurt. I can think of people that have offended me and hurt me and 
when I'm called to forgive, it's like, well, how do you do that if you've never been forgiven? But if you've been forgiven by God, who doesn't owe it to you? Well, does that not affect the way you <laughs> respond to others that have offended you? You see how truth transforms us? Truth is so important. By the way, a little sidebar, the reason why the world is so nuts, people are so insane, is because of a lack of truth. And the church largely has failed to proclaim truth into law, into education, into science. It's like they, we're afraid of those things. We have like an inferiority complex. And we see our society crumbling all around us because people, when you don't have truth, what do you have? Lies. Lies about who you are, lies about what society's priorities are, lies about false views of justice, lies about science, lies about the purpose of education. Lies, lies, there's lies everywhere. Truth is meant to transform us and this truth is meant to transform us. We have a new outlook on life. And then second to that, we have a new mission for life. And our mission takes the form, as we've already, we've already broached this subject, it takes the form of, of an ambassadorship, understanding that you're an ambassador, a representative. And then it affects your testimony, how you live your life around other people. So if, you're a, if you know you've been redeemed, you've been reconciled to God, you're a redemptive agent, you're, you're in the business of bringing God's reconciling message out into the world, then you need to see yourself as an ambassador and you need to be careful how you live. So back into the text, verse 20 reads, therefore, this is under the heading of our ambassadorship. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, not for self, for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Note that in your mind. We're going to come back to it. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. I would say implore is a strong word. It's a word that implies urgency. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that is Christ. The father made the son sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then check this out. We're now in chapter six. Working together with him, by the way, that language, working together with him, sounds an awful lot like the language of verse 20, God making his appeal through us. There's a cooperative dimension to our relationship with God in terms of how he reconciles the world to himself. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, and now he quotes from Isaiah 48, 9, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. He doesn't even quote it in context. It's a different context. But I think what he's trying to uh, point us to by quoting from Isaiah 49, 8 is urgency, urgency. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So going back here to verse 20, I want to sort of spend a little time on this. I think this is just a, a precious and informative thing for us to hold on to for a bit. It's the statement, God making his appeal through us. Now, 
You're not going to find anybody, I don't think, on planet Earth that has a greater appreciation for and belief in the sovereignty of God than Aaron Rock. God is absolutely and totally sovereign. We cannot deny that, can't downplay that, can't sidestep that. That is fundamental. In fact, God can't even be God if he's not sovereign. You can't call yourself God if you're not sovereign. God is God and God is sovereign. But oftentimes we fall into what I would call hyper-spirituality, a spirituality that goes beyond the pages of scripture. And you have Christians running around thinking, oh, you know, God is God, he's in control, I don't need to share my faith. God will take care of it. God's going to save whom God's going to save. Oh, there's injustice in the world. We're just going to have a prayer meeting. Yeah, there's a lot of nasty, terrible, murderous things going on in our society. God's God. He'll take care of that. Who am I to stand in the way of God? Who am I to presume that God would use a worm like me to do any good in this world? Have you, kinda, have you heard some of that, maybe in your own thinking or from other Christians? It's a, this hyper-spiritual, I just need to endure and you know, me and Jesus hang out every day and we kind of fellowship and pray and just kind, of, just kind of endure and just let the world go to hell in a handbasket, so to speak. But what we see in this text is that in God's sovereignty, he uses his church to accomplish his purposes. And if the preacher doesn't preach, how can they hear? So here we have, God makes his appeal through us. So this is the first part of this. We have a solemn privilege and honor as created beings to speak on God's behalf. Think about that. The church is the mouthpiece of God in the world. We speak truth on God's behalf. This in no way, shape, or form diminishes God and his sovereignty. But it reminds us of this beauty, this honor that we have to cooperate with God. To proclaim the message of transformation. Now, we sort of know this existentially because as we look around us, it's, it's so often true that if a husband, for example, is called to be the spiritual leader of his home, loves God and brings the gospel into his relationship with his wife, he ends up with a solid Christian marriage. But if he doesn't, things start to fall apart and God doesn't step in and say, well, yeah, it's going to be a super godly marriage even though you're doing nothing. Or the, the parent, the Christian parent that says, I, I get it. I was, I was raised thinking that, you know, the goal is to have a few kids and, you know, they're, they're going to be fun and it's going to be awesome. And I got to get them speaking the English language and get them into school and get them through school. And hopefully they'll get A's and B's and then get them into a good job and, you know, make sure they're well-dressed. And, you know, if they have crooked teeth, we'll fix that. And if they're socially awkward, we'll take them to therapy and, you know, whatever it might be, Right. And that's the goal. So you got these Christians that raise these kids that are contributing members of society, but they don't love Jesus. And the, parent, the Christian parent's like, okay, eureka moment. This is actually about discipleship. At the end of the day, it's about discipleship. Aha, that's what, that's what being a Christian parent is. It's about discipling my kids. 
God uses his people. We know this, that if you, if you don't tend to your marriage, things fall apart. If you don't tend to your kids, things fall apart. If Christians don't stand for truth and culture, the atheist isn't going to stand for it. If Christians don't stand for justice for the unborn, no one else really cares. They're not going to do it. Ah, just let go and let God? No, that's not biblical. God uses his church. Look at the text again. God making his appeal through us. And then this sense of urgency. I love the word here, implore. It implies the sense of urgency in our methods and our ways, sometimes sadly lacking in our lives. There's not a sense of urgency. It's like, I'll get around to that when I have some extra time. One of the saddest parts of modern day Christianity is this idea that we just use our spare change and our spare time and our spare energy for God. And somewhere in the Bible, I think it says something about first fruits, not the squished apple at the bottom of the barrel. When everyone else, everyone else, every other one's been eaten. Okay, well, here, God, here's my leftover time. Here's my, our, our lives are supposed to be radical in the sense that it's, it's all for God and his glory. Now, the basis of all this is not self, okay? Not self, not our strategies and ingenuity. I'll read verse 21 again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no, knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christian theology, we call this, this verse helps to build a doctrine that we call the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal from the idea of penalty. Substitutionary, you know that one. Atonement, this idea of covering sin, being reconciled with God. And here we have Christ being portrayed in the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Christ was punished and bore in his body our sin. He was penalized for our sin to set us free from the punishment, the penalty of sin, so that when God looks at us, we become the righteousness of God, not through our own efforts, which false religion teaches you can do, but through the work of Christ. This is biblical orthodoxy. Some teach, I would call it an aberrant doctrine called governmental atonement, where they, they picture Christ, so Christ comes, he dies for sin, and he's not actually being punished for our sin. He's not bearing our sin in his body. It's just God is, sort of so, uh, God is sort of showing his displeasure towards sin. So then what becomes the basis for atonement? Well, your repentance or your faith or your confession of sin, something you kind of bring to the table. And we would say no, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ is the basis upon which we are reconciled to God. And faith and repentance and confession and all that comes out of that and through that. But in no way, shape, or form should we ever allow this thought to enter into our minds that the reason why God has redeemed us is because I chose him. I chose to put faith in him. I was maybe a little better than the average serial killer. You know, I, I, I go to church a lot or I'm you know, more or less righteous. Any of that is stinking thinking and bad theology. 
the finished work of Christ, the finished work of Christ alone is the basis, the foundation of orthodox, an orthodox biblical understanding of Christian soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Christ is the lamb of God. Remember the Old Testament, all those sacrifices, temporary atonements and coverings for sin. Christ is the ultimate lamb of God. Now, verse one of chapter six brings us back around to this idea of cooperating with God and his evangelistic desires. So if you look there again, there's this call to speak on God's behalf, to serve on Christ's behalf. And when he quotes from Isaiah 49, as I've already mentioned, it's meant to illustrate urgency. So we need to then ask ourselves this question. How urgent am I to be an ambassador for Christ? We all have passions. What are we passionate about? How urgent are you to live as an ambassador for Christ? I know it can be kind of intimidating. You can feel maybe unworthy, but we are ambassadors for Christ. And we need to go about our task with a sense of urgency, prioritizing it. Uh, that means you got to burn a few extra calories, put some energy into it, some time into it, to be an ambassador for Christ in your marriage, in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your place of employment. You know, the old model was go find a job and maybe once in a while pray for your coworkers. And if someone asks you, hey, you know this old evangelistic approach. They're gonna, there's going to be this moment at work where someone comes up to you and they're like, there's something different about you. Something different about you. Like, what is it? Perfect opportunity. You segue into your relationship with Christ and they bow at the water cooler and come to Christ, right? Never happens really. This has never happened to me. It's not just take Christianity, put it attack, a little, little tag onto your job. Being a Christian in your vocation means that the, the way you deal with people ethically, your love, the way you interact with your employees, your employer, your boss, the people around you, your customers, your prayer life, how you conduct a business, it's all Christian. It's all from a Christian perspective and worldview. You don't teach falsehood because someone tells you to. You don't act dishonestly because everyone else does. You don't put in 30 hours when you're paid for 40. You don't take company product home and steal it. You, you act differently than everyone else. You know, Christians should almost never be unemployed. We should be the people that our employers want the most. We should be the best employees, the most conscientious employees, the most thoughtful and skilled employees doing it all to the glory of God. People should love to employ Christians, except for maybe at like strip clubs. But people should love to employ Christian people because we're not just Sunday morning only in our faith. We live it out day to day to day. It's part of our ambassadorship. Now, this next section is going to make some of us feel a little uncomfortable. Ready? So if your shirt's buttoned up to the top, you might want to open the top button and just kind of loosen the collar a little bit, okay? Maybe separate out a little bit from the people around you. This is, our, this is all about our testimony. So it starts off with, beginning with verse three, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. Now, what this is, a bit, 
alluding to as Paul teaches elsewhere is this idea. We, we never want to be a stumbling block. We never want there to be like unnecessary hurdles people have to jump or encumbrances to the gospel, right? So um, a, a, a classic example of this would be when I was a kid, in order to get into the church that I was in, you had to dress a certain way. So you had to have the suit going, white shirt, the tie. And I'm telling you the truth. If you entered the door without that, you would be talked to within minutes by one of the elders, right? (laughs) And this is an unnecessary encumbrance to the gospel. I'll tell you a couple other stories because they're just hilarious. They seem like something from like the 1850s. But you couldn't drive a red car because that was a worldly color. So all of you that are wearing red today, that's very sexual of you. (laughs) You don't wear that stuff in church, right? Um, Back in the mid-80s, I don't see it too much anymore. It was kind of a style for guys to get a little stud in their earring, right? A little earring. There's no way you'd be let in, okay? So things like that. I remember we took a guy to church when I was younger. I mean, the guy had just barely come to faith in Jesus Christ. And before anyone even asked him his name, one of the elders took him aside and said, that earring in your ear has got to go. That's women's apparel, right? So we don't want to be like that. We don't want to put unnecessary encumbrances in the way of the gospel. But if you hold up your fingers for a moment and get ready to do some counting, Let me read through the list of things that Christians endure and just say, yeah, I've endured that, I've endured that, I've endured that. Or if you've endured none of them, you can't can't curl up any of your fingers. So check this out. Here's some of the things that Christians should expect to experience if we're being faithful to the ministry that God has given to us. Verse four, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance If you've experienced some of that, you can fold a finger. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And then you can pause that for a moment. All of those things are part of our testimony. We should expect them. And then we have some virtues, a list of virtues. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Okay, so we have, follow me here, a list of nasty things that will happen to you if you're a follower of Christ, a list of virtues that should be evident in your life if you're gonna be a good testimony. And now we have a list of misunderstandings. You'll do this, but people misunderstand it. You'll, you'll be well-intentioned, but people will accuse you of bad intention. So listen to this little list here. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. What this section of the the chapter is reminding us of is 
everything to do with our testimony. Now, if you had your fingers up, you might have been like, oh man, I can't, I can't roll one. I've never experienced any affliction. No one's ever threatened me with death. I've never been beaten or persecuted or experienced a, a calamity. Now, we're going to give you a break for that, if that's you, if you've been saved for like a week or less. Okay? But if you've been saved for longer than that and you have never taken one blow for Christ, does the Bible not say beware when all men speak well of you? Like if, if you've never been pushed around or ridiculed or criticized or told you're a moron or whatnot for Christ, it's probably because you're not really a good ambassador. You just move to the country and you're hanging out on the beach. But the ambassador will necessarily experience these things. And guess what? All of these hardships and sacrifices are part of our testimony. They're part of it. What else can it mean? Carry the cross of Christ. Sacrifice. All the sacrificial language. It's part of our testimony. Jesus didn't have an easy life. And then all the virtue, we need to assess, like, are these things true in my life? And if they are, the virtue is part of our testimony. So the sacrifice is part of our testimony. The virtuous characteristics are part of our testimony. And then the, the accusations, which will fly back and forth, are also part of our testimony. Like so often we are accused of being the exact opposite of what we actually are. Unloving. Hopeless, losers, <laughs> and the accusations fly, but we're the exact opposite of that. It's fascinating to me, and, and I hope you're all thinking about this, because I, I pay a little bit of attention to what goes on around me. It's fascinating to, to me when the world postures itself as virtuous. There's this new term, virtue signaling, Right? It postures itself as virtuous. So we have unbelievers. It's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's so ridiculous, it's hilarious. We have unbelievers saying, uh, lock your churches down, love your neighbor. Oh, where'd you get that from? Love your neighbor, where's that come from? Are you serious? You think you know about love, but you don't even know Jesus? You think we're unloving? Fall of a science. Oh, really? We're a bunch of dummies here? We don't have any appreciation for science? We can't read and write? There's nobody in this church who knows anything about biology or chemistry? We're just a bunch of dolts? The justice warriors, right? All these movements, which if you study them, are just are ridiculous. Standing up for racism. Oh, the church doesn't know anything about racism? We don't have Galatians at our disposal? There's neither Jew nor Gentile slave nor Greek, man or woman, you know, all alike in Christ. We don't, have, we, we don't understand that. We're all a bunch of racists. Social justice, feeding the poor and the widow. Where did that idea come from? Not from Islam. Not from secular humanism. It comes from the Bible. But we live in a world where there, there's the propaganda campaigns, and I think they're ultimately orchestrated by the devil, that the world likes to present itself as so virtuous and so sophisticated and so, you know, ahead of the game. And the Christians, they're all 
backwards and out for themselves and you know, unhelpful and on and on and on. Now, if you're told that message enough, you might even start to believe it. So I've seen this in Christians. In fact, little little sidebar here. Um, I've seen a lot of people apostatize in Christianity. And one of the very earliest signs of apostasy is a critical spirit toward the church. You watch. As soon as people start speaking negatively, oh, the church doesn't do anything. The church is useless. The church is irrelevant. You hear Christians talking that way. Apostasy is, is the very next step. The church is going to be accused of all this stuff. But, but we, we know the truth. We know that people that say these things are ignorant or self-righteous or think they're well-meaning, but they're being used of by Satan to deceive us. We understand the truth. We know who Jesus is. We have the gospel at our disposal. We know right from wrong. We're the, we're the people that, that want to meet with the sick when everyone else wants to run away. The church of Jesus Christ, the first free institution in the history of the world. It's the church that developed a lot of our medical science educational institutions advocated for the poor, the widow. Read Acts 6. What were they doing? Feeding the widows. They had an organizational structure for that. These are, these are our ideas. And they're part of our mission. But we'll be, as we seek to live for Christ and we do these things, there's always the spin doctors out there trying to make us look like a bunch of fools or ignoramuses or haters. But viewed properly as ambassadors for Christ, all these things actually serve to strengthen us and to purify the church. It's interesting here that Paul, at the tail end, um, makes this, this comment that he, his heart is wide open. It's like, I, there's, I'm not hiding anything. What you see is what you get. <laughs> and that's what we should all be like. No pretenses, no, we're not faking it. We're raw. We're, we're straightforward, we're genuine. What you see is what you get. Now, uh, th speaking of all this, this accusation, I will say that, you know, the hope is in all of this is that God purifies his church through challenges. So I would be a lesser man if my life had been perfect up till now. But God purifies us as he permits us to be hurt and accused and challenged. And as we have to think through the issues of life. And God wants to purify you, brother or sister. God wants to purify you. He wants you to grow up. He wants you to mature. He wants you to become bolder. And as we think about even the circumstances we find ourselves in and different threats that are out there, you know, if you keep your church open, we're going to charge you $10 million. We're going to take all of your directors and charge them $500,000. We're going to throw them in jail for a year. It's like, gulp. Kind of scary, right? But could it be that God has given the modern Canadian church so much because he might want to take it away to test us? Could it be? Do we not say in our church all the time, 
Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. As soon as we think we own it, we cease to steward it. As soon as we try to hold on to it, God often takes it away. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 12, 48. Everyone to whom much has been given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Maybe God has given us so much because he wants to take it away or at least threaten to take it away to see how we will respond. We could say, I don't want to lose anything. I don't want to, I don't want another Windsor star writer falsifying a story about me. True story. I don't want people calling me and accusing me of nefarious motives. I don't want the broader Christian community thinking I'm a weirdo, <laughs> whatever it might be. But both persecution and the example that we set serves as testimonies to God's gracious work in our lives and our convictions. And so regardless of the fallout and the consequences, we must do that, which is right. Obviously, we want to be discerning to make sure we're not self-deceived. We want to do that, which is right and be ambassadors for Christ. Ultimately, it's not about my reputation. It's about Jesus' reputation. Ultimately, you're an ambassador for Christ, not an ambassador for yourself, for your own self-advancement. So let's up our game and let's make sure that our ambassadorship is successful. How do we do that? By representing the purposes and messages of God and looking forward to the day, either in this life or the future, when we will be amply rewarded for our faithfulness to the Lord. So let's stay the course. And let's stay the course knowing that God will always stay the course with his faithful people.